And as we turn our attention to the text this morning, that is, in fact, the theme and the subject of our time this morning together. Gather with me now, beginning at verse 21 through the end of the chapter. Now hear the Word of God. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said unto him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded he be sold with his wife and children and all that he has, that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved. And they came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do each of you from his heart if he does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you have forgiven us of all of our trespasses in Christ. And Lord, how thankful we are for the work that you have performed, the life that you have lived, the obedience that you have given in order that we might be redeemed and have all of our sins forgiven. Have them washed away and cleansed. And we pray that you would open up the attention of our hearts this morning to this text. That we might go and do likewise. To forgive our brothers of the sins that they have sinned against us. Lord, we ask that your spirit would now attend to the preaching of your word and soften us where we've been hard. And break up the fallow ground of our hearts. That they would be receptive to the word now uh, that is planted in those hearts. That it would bring forth much fruit in due season. And even work in our hearts today. Speak to our hearts with, with your compassion. And speak to them with your instruction. And convict us where we fall short of your great glory. And we pray that you would bless us now and be glorified in this time together as this is received in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
I'd like to go back as we consider this particular text in its context. We often extract passages out of their context, and it's important to keep it all together here. There are three sections of Matthew 18, and it's all in answer to the disciples' question that began in verse 1, Lord, who is the greatest in your kingdom? And Jesus began explaining who is the greatest in his kingdom, or at least the quality of greatness, in three different sections. They all require two things in each of these sections, which kinds of kind of uh, characterizes them together. And what is common about all three of those sections is they all deal with our relationship with others. And secondly, they all require humility. The first section, which he began to answer the question, it goes from verse 2 to verse 14. And Jesus then takes a child and he uses the child as an illustration throughout those verses. And he begins to explain the greatness of the kingdom. As you enter into the kingdom, is as a child. It's with the humility of a child. And that greatness is about maintaining that same humility in which you once entered. And humility is that characteristic which evidences itself in your relationship with others. In verse 5, it requires that we receive one another. In verses 6-9, through nine, humility then considers yourself in the context of others. And in verses 10 through 11, that humility does not despise one another. It does not look down upon or show contempt upon them. Well, the second passage or section of Matthew 18, even in response to this particular question that Jesus was answering, was dealing with a sinning brother. And like the previous section, that too requires a great deal of humility from us to do this and to do it correctly. But this last section that I just read, beginning at verse 21, probably requires the greatest humility of them all as he deals with this matter of forgiveness. And this is a very important and a very difficult topic for us. If you think that it is easy to give forgiveness, then you have obviously not been grievously sinned against by a brother. Now the light things are easy to forgive an offense when they really don't hurt a lot to begin with. But there are things that Christian people do to one another that wound and strike at the heart. And families have been torn apart by an offense and the lack of forgiveness. A lack of a forgiving spirit has torn apart mission works. Has split missionaries' relationships up on the field. Has torn churches apart. It has split sessions and leadership in church. 
And in all areas and in every kind of relationship and in all stations of life, there have been Christians who simply cannot set aside something that someone else has done against them. And it's not easy to forgive another of a grievous sin against you. And it's even more difficult to do this as a regular practice when the same person keeps coming back and sinning against you. In fact, I'll go on to say that it is impossible to do this in the flesh. As we get into this last section today, I would like for us all to take this very deeply to heart. This is a message that you should not be detached from. You should not be thinking about the other person next to you or the person up here. We should all take it deeply to our own hearts before God. Because there's not a person in here who hasn't been defrauded of something that was not lawfully yours. Or who has not been the subject of unkind words or unjust words or unlawful actions. So this subject should be very relevant to us. When Peter asked the question of the Lord in verse 21, Lord, how many times should we do this? Up to seven times? It was probably reflecting back on the previous context, maybe in verse 15, when if your brother has an offense against you, go and tell him his offense, and if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, How many times should I do that, Lord? Up to seven times? Now perhaps he was interacting with a very common rabbinical teaching in the first century that required it up to three times, but not four. For instance, I'll quote one of those rabbis who said, if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he is forgiven, the fourth time he is not forgiven. Or another, he who begs forgiveness from his neighbor must not do so more than three times. And perhaps Peter was asking, and even being more generous than the common teaching of the day, when he asked the Lord up to seven times, We may be thinking that, well, teaching like that and quantifying forgiveness is that's inappropriate. But when we stop and consider for a moment how difficult it is to forgive one grievous and heinous sin against you, then perhaps we can understand a little bit more that it's not an easy thing to deal with. And then that person comes back 18 months later and they do it again. And then another six months they come back and they do it again. And you can see that what Peter is asking is actually fairly generous. And yet Peter is asking something that we all wrestle with in some way. What are the exact limits that we have to go to with others to be right? 
Right? Don't we wrestle with that? What are the exact limits that we're required to go to with others and, and be right? And our Lord occupies, His answer occupies the remainder of the passage, and He does it in two parts. First of all, He gives a principle, and second of all, He illustrates that with a parable. But I want you to take some time and evaluate in your own spirit this morning. If you're engaged in any controversy with a family member, or with a brother or a sister in Christ, particularly in our own church, if you have harbored any resentment or anger or bitterness that has not been dealt with in a forgiving spirit, then listen with special attention and engage yourself in listening this morning from the heart to what the Lord is speaking to all of us here this morning. I confess when Kelly prayed in the time of prayer time this morning that I would preach with boldness and courage that um, it is anything but that this morning that I preach. This is a struggle for me. And as we contemplate what the Lord is speaking to us about, we need to look upward into the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and come to this place of great release. He gives us the principle in verse 22. That's the first point. And he answers this, he says to Peter, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to... Seventy times seven. Well, Peter was being very generous with seven. And Jesus responds with the unthinkable 490. So I'd like to discuss, first of all, what does, what does he not mean when he says this? And then what does he really mean when he says 70 times seven? Because there's certain things he does not mean. And let's first of all address what Jesus does not mean when he said that. And it's important to understand that Jesus is answering Peter's question from the standpoint of how many times we have to forgive the sinner. And it's not the question that should imply a lot of answers to the one who has sinned. That's not the audience here. So the one who sins against another should not extract the principles here for himself of what Jesus did not mean when he answered the 70 times 7. Let me see if I can illustrate that with point number 1. Point number 1, what he did not mean is he is not intending for us to think that sinning is inconsequential. If because of Jesus' answer we tend to minimize sin, then we have grossly missed the point. Oh, I can sin against my brother, I can go back and go back and go back. If I have come away with this with any kind of dilution in my own mind or spirit that sin is not of any great magnitude or seriousness, 
I have grossly misunderstood Jesus' answer. A single offense is so important that in the previous passage, our Lord demanded that we should go and confront a brother about it. So don't anyone go the other way and think he can just act with impunity toward a brother with no consequence. And don't let Jesus' answer allow your spirit to be dismissive of what you deem a little offense against a brother. All sin is grievous and needs to be dealt with properly. Number two, what he's not teaching is that forgiveness is really an easy thing to obtain because it does require repentance. A passage that's parallel to this is in Luke 17, verse 3 through 4. And it's important for us to understand this parallel passage as well because he gives us a couple of things that this particular passage does not give. But it's, but it's a very close parallel passage. He says in verse 3, Take heed to yourself if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And this is just the way Matthew 18's passage is opening up. Verse 3 of Luke 17 is not in Matthew 18, and this is the portion that we are to go and we are to rebuke our brother. That is in Matthew 18, but the next portion, and if he repents, forgiving. If he repents and comes back to you seven times a day, then seven times forgiving. And the second thing here that indicates that forgiveness is not easy for the sinner to obtain is because it does require his repentance. Sin is not inconsequential, and being forgiven is not always simple. Because you would have to turn away from your sin if you expect those who are offended to dismiss it from their consideration. Well, another thing that Jesus did not mean, He didn't mean that it was inconsequential, and He didn't mean that it's always easy. The third thing He did not mean is that forgiving someone always returns everything to its previous state between the two of you. Some further adjustments of a relationship may be required for the sake of the offender and the offended. And even God doesn't always return the matters back to the previous state, even though He forgives. There are times when it's best to forgive someone, but not to bring them back into the same position of temptation, at least for a while. So it doesn't always return everything back to its previous state. Well, those are three things that it does not mean, but let's take positively what he does mean when he says 70 times 7. 
He clearly means when he says that, that this should not be quantified. He doesn't mean forgiveness goes on for 490 times, and then on your ledger book you say, ah, I'm at 491, so therefore, no more requirement here. That's exactly what he was not intending. And he was saying it in such a way that he is saying that there is not a ledger to a specific limit of how many times you are to forgive. There is no limit to this. You basically lose count of this. Because you're not keeping count. It's an endless type of thing. You can't weigh out forgiveness like you would count a commodity or judge a commodity. It's a matter of heart. And in that sense, in that sense, forgiveness is a matter of forgetting. I can't be adding one more offense to the heap because I keep account of that growing heap. Or you can't go and sweep it under the rug and as the heap continues to build, and then you and your spouse get in a little argument and you say, but you always do that. Don't you remember last week? When last week your spouse came to you and confessed his sin and and asked for forgiveness and you gave it to him, you cannot bring that back up. It's dismissed. You have promised that you have dismissed that. And if you bring that back up, you really haven't forgiven him. And now you are the guilty. You can't quantify it this way. You can't keep a ledger book and keep track of matters this way. This is not the spirit of forgiveness at all. And yet, that's sometimes how we act when we keep, oh yeah, you always do this. Or you never. Always and never are two words you ought to just get out of your vocabulary when you're dealing with your relationships with one another. Those are emotive words that rarely have any truth to them. And they are explosive and unredemptive in their quality. And be careful when your spirit rises up to use those two words in confrontation or anger. Because it shows that you are keeping some account. So what Jesus is addressing here is this tendency to keep score. How far can I go? But no further. And the principle that Jesus is teaching here is there is no limit to this. There is absolutely no limit of the forgiveness that's required of you. You just keep on forgiving. And you say, I can't do that. I can't do that. And that's why the second part of the answer that Jesus now gives is in a matter of a parable to support this principle. And that's where this parable comes in. And the central character of this parable is a king. And this king is illustrative of God the Father. And he provides two motivations for this continual spirit of forgiveness. Number one has to do with your past, and number two has to do with your future. 
The part of the parable that deals with our past is the Lord helping us with a resentment and ongoing hurt. And in some cases, these kinds of things can twist and reshape our entire personality. Sometimes people's whole personalities have been changed by someone who has sinned against them. And sinned against them maybe even greatly. But there has then been an inward work in that spirit, in that hurtful heart that has been sinned against, that the countenance drops and the spirit becomes negative and it seems like it's impossible for them to say anything positive about anything. Their whole personality has been warped because of this. There's a spirit that is rooted in some kind of trouble or a wound that they've experienced in their past. And if there is a person with whom you have conflict with this morning, whether they have repented and asked forgiveness or not, as you consider how to deal with that situation, listen to the Lord's counsel as He calls your attention to your past. This parable in verse 25 takes an unimaginable kind of turn here. For people who heard it that day just shook their heads with just unbelief in what they heard. They first of all hear of a servant's position. A servant who owed his master 10,000 talents. That in and of itself is beyond imagination. So the figure the Lord used is so immense that we cannot even get our minds around it. In order to try a little bit, let me just quantify a bit of what he's saying. A talent was worth about 20 years of a laborer's wages. One talent. This particular slave owed 10,000 talents. 10,000 20 years of his annual salary. 20,000 years of his annual salary is how much this servant owed his master. That's, that's the point. If a man lived to the time he's 80 years old, that's 2,500 lifetimes of annual salary he owes this master. The Lord is making a point. The slave knows he can't pay it. If he lived 2,500 lifetimes, he couldn't pay it. He would have accrued so much more by that time. It's a debt that will outrun him, and he will never be able to repay. He's already, if he starts today, 2,500 lifetimes behind. He owes an impossible debt beyond the ability to even conceive how he could begin to pay that kind of debt off. And he keeps piling up the debt as he moves on in life. And we owe God like that. We owe Him all of our love. 
We owe Him all of our love, all of the time. And we fail so miserably. But notice that the Lord of the slave had feelings. Had feelings for this servant. He felt compassion. He feels. He's emotive. Compassion. And here the king stands for your heavenly Father who has compassion. Whose tender mercies are new every morning and who, which endures forever. Compassion. Looking upon you and me with pity. And doing something about it. And he just, verse 27, just released him. Just dismissed the debt completely in total. Folks, that is your past. This is what God has done for every one of us when we have cried out to God to forgive us of our sins, which are immense and beyond our comprehension. And He says, I have dismissed them all. Past, present, and future. Sometimes it really does help us when we are aware of ourselves in the context of others. That goes back to the first portion of this section in Matthew 18 where he's taking a child up and he talks about being a stumbling block and he's making us aware of ourselves in the context of others. And sometimes it really does help us to come to an awareness of the magnitude of our sin against the Lord just to see another person's reaction on their face and on their countenance when we have grievously sinned against them. And you see the hurt. You see the anger. You see the recoil. And you see that you have caused that by something you did. And sometimes that's helpful for you to remember that kind of reaction for one of your transgressions, and yet you just pile them up against God all day long. Sometimes we come out with something that we say that is cutting and demeaning and arrogant against someone else and we see how they their face changes and they're hurt and they recoil and how it brings to home how serious of a thing that is that you just said that brought that hurt that broke that relationship at that moment and that's just against another human being not against God And all that sin that you've committed against Him, even the sins that you have never known but have committed in ignorance, God just forgives it all. He knows of it all. And He knows even more than you know. And He just forgives it all. 2,500 lifetimes of it. And 
God is never going to call you into account for that. He's not going to roll down the big screen on the day of judgment and put up his PowerPoint presentation and slide number one has your name upon it. Slide number two has your life. And slide number three has now all of your sins. And here they come, slide three and four and five, while all the rest of heaven and us look on. And we watch every single thing you did against God and other people. Folks, that will never happen, praise God. Your sins, as the hymn says, they are gone, gone, gone. All my sins are gone. God has dismissed all of those sins. And if God has dismissed them, there is no one that can bring a just cause against you. Even the devil accuses you, but God doesn't pay any attention to that because your sins have been put upon Christ, upon the cross, and He died and He buried those sins, and now you are raised together in Him. In His resurrection, you so now live. Seated with Him in the heavenlies. Protected by our Lord's intercession. And having victory in the Gospel. Now that's your past. And you have to consider your past. Because we all have people that owe us something. And this servant had a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarius is about one day's wage. A hundred denarii is about a hundred days of wage. And for you, that's not a small matter when you consider that makes up about a third of your annual salary. But in relation to a single talent, it takes 6,000 denarii to become one talent. And a single talent is about 20 years of salary. And 10,000 of them is 2,500 lifetimes of salary. And so when you get right down to it, that which you think is pretty big to you is really inconsequential. It's a very, very small, inconsequential matter in relation to what God has already done for you in your past. You know what? Everybody owes you some hundred denarii. At least some people have owed you some hundred denarii. And you owe some other people some hundred denarii. A, a letter that you owe. Or somebody owes you. Uh, that phone call. Or that thank you note. More demonstration of love and appreciation for another. More care and attention that you really owed somebody in your love for God. 
And if we stop to think about that and we want to tally it up, we can come up with a number of people who owe us thank yous and who owe us follow-up letters and who owes us some attention. All of these are just very minor in comparison. Some, some people owe, owe you money. Some people owe you large sums of money. Some may owe you an apology that they have never put into words. Or a word of more sincere apology. Or a word of apology that you think should have been worded a different way. This servant has just been forgiven 2,500 lifetimes of salary and he confronts his brother and he takes him by the hands and begins to choke him demanding that he pay this small, infinitesimal amount. And some Christian people are just like that. They just look like they're choking their brother. Just being... Hard and harsh. Not having any give at all. They've got him in a chokehold and they're going to hold him to an account. Hold him to the exactness of what they think they owe them. This fellow servant does the same thing that was in this servant's Thought. He falls down and he pleads with his fellow servant for compassion and for mercy, for patience. Committing to make it right. But the servant who had been forgiven had no such compassion and no such mercy that he has already been shown. How quickly we forget our past. Verse 31 shows us when all of his other fellow servants, they hear this, they see this, and they're aghast. You know, that parallels exactly what goes on in your own family, in the church, your brothers and sisters. They, they hear this, they see this, and they're, they're aghast at your behavior. And when... You're that harsh and you have that kind of spirit with, with your brother or sister. Their recourse is going to be to God about you. They're going to talk to the Lord about you. I don't know about you, but it's not a very pleasant thing to think about the prayers of the brethren going to God talking about you and your unforgiving spirit against your brother, against your spouse, against your child, against your father or your mother. And they are occupying their prayers with your unforgiving Spirit. That becomes the subject matter of their pray. And have you ever stopped to imagine their complaint to God about you for your unforgiving spirit? It's 
harbor bitterness and anger. And this is not a small thing because the Lord listens. The Lord hears. And this is where the second part of the parable comes in that deals with your future. Verse 32 through 34, the master then calls in this unforgiving servant back to him after he's heard from the testimony of the brethren. And he calls him back to him. And again, we're going to see that the master has feelings for this servant. He's going to feel emotion once again. And he's emotive. But this time, those feelings are not compassion. Those feelings are anger. And a righteous indignation against that servant. Who so freely gave him of all of his debt. That he would have never been able to pay. And then this servant goes and lays hands upon his fellow servants. So now the master turns him over to the tortures. Until everything will be paid. To exact from Him what He's looking for. And now this slave is going to have to repay everything. He's going to have to pay more than a hundred denarii. Oh, he's going to have to pay more than 2,500 lifetimes of now what he owes. And this is a consideration of our future. The last verse points ahead to God, and God will do the same to you if you are not forgiving of your brother of his or her trespass. The Lord's Prayer has six petitions in it, and as we pray that petition, that fifth petition, it is the only petition of our Lord's Prayer that He continues and goes on in the text in Matthew 6 and gives commentary to, and He says, and if you do not forgive your brother of his trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you of your trespasses. And God is being related to Here, this king, this master, who will require the same of you if you do not forgive the measly little sins. Referring to handing us over to the tortures. And there's many kinds of tortures. People who are given over to an unforgiving spirit and their circumstances and their personalities, and their countenance, and everything that displays in their life that they are being tortured even before the end. And if you watch someone like that, you can see that they are being tortured because of a harboring, unforgiving spirit. Keeping that ledger, always remembering 
keeping the accounts, and yet having forgotten everything that God has done for them in Christ. There is a biblical theology that deals with Christians who will not deal with sin. If he will not deal with it, if he will not deal with it, and he will not deal with it, he is no Christian. And that's a biblical theology. Now the Lord really means this when He says that I want my church to be one. I want my church to be united in the truth. I want my church to love one another. And by when they do, the world will know they're my disciples. And this love means that we have to deal with sin. It might require us to confront one another on sin. It does require of us to forgive others of sin. It requires us of, of us to receive one another as a little child and not despise and look down upon them and not put stumbling blocks in their path. And there's a righteousness to His people and a harmony between these people that He, by His own blood upon the cross, made us people to be. And this comes by dealing with the sins in our lives when that sin comes up and to be just as willing to set it aside and dismiss it from those who seek the forgiveness. Now if you go to your brother and he does not repent of his sin, you cannot objectively forgive him if he does not repent. I want to be clear about that. Luke 17 says, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Objectively, you don't forgive him. Neither does God forgive universally all sinners, but they have to repent and seek his forgiveness, and then he offers it freely. However, subjectively, you must have and have to have a forgiving spirit. And if you do not have a forgiving spirit, you are in violation of the Scripture's teaching. So there is an objective aspect to forgiveness and a subjective spirit that accompanies this, whether he is objectively forgiven or not. I'm sure that will prompt questions that we can entertain this afternoon in our two o'clock if we want to do so. You're going to have to work this out. Because I think you know when you have a forgiving spirit and when you do not. One of the ways that you know is when the poison has gone out of your spirit in relation to that person? Or is there poison still in your spirit? When the poison leaves, there's not a heavily tortured spirit going on any longer. Whereas before, the bitterness and the unforgiving spirit continues to battle there. 
And we have to rest in the Lord in these things. And if you cannot rest in the Lord, and that poison has not left your spirit against another person, then there's still some more work that God needs to do in you. And when you struggle with forgiving another and having a forgiving spirit, you have to first and foremost remember right then your past. And you're going to have to look at what God in Christ has done for you. And against that backdrop, that gives you the the wherewithal and the grace and the Spirit to be so thankful for that, that in the heart of gratitude and a love for God, you can dismiss this. You're also going to have to, and you should consider your future, that if you do not forgive, God will exact your debt from you, and it will take an eternity for you to pay. If you are truly in Christ, you have the power of the Holy Spirit, which has changed you into a different kind of human, which has renewed the image of God in you and is being renewed in you, so that you will have the Spirit of God enabling you by His grace to do what God has in Christ done for you as it relates to your brother. Because your brother who's asking your forgiveness is one that God has already forgiven for his sins. Now it's simple, but this is not easy. Dismiss in your spirit all of the sins that others have sinned against you. And perhaps you have been taking a a ledger book and you've been marking those things down mentally. Perhaps you dwell upon these things and maybe you bring it up to other people and you bring it back up to the the sinner occasionally just to remind him of of his weakness, of his sinfulness against you and, and what things He has done against you. And, and you want Him to remember. And that cancer is already working in your spirit. And you are not remembering your past. And you're not considering your future. If you let that go on for too long, your personality can be permanently warped. And your countenance will fall and your spirit will become negative and it's going to be hard for you to find anything positive in life any longer. But there is a reversal of this. And that is when you repent of your sins for harboring this. And now you who have been confronted and you who have been sinned against, now you must go and go out before the Lord on your knees and ask Him to forgive you for all of the harboring, for all of the counting, for all of the the, the taking of the notes and remembering and bringing back up and bringing to mind and using those nevers and always... And you need to fall on your face before God and ask Him to forgive you for all that is down in your heart of hearts. And cleanse you with the forgiveness that He promises He will do if you forgive your brother 
of their trespasses against you. Because God in His love has forgiven you of all of those things. Everything you've committed against Him, including these track record. Every time you write down this sin and you register it in your heart and you have a tension in your spirit now that distances you and you do not deal with that, that's a sin that you need to repent of. If it lingers, you need to go to your brother. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. And it's dismissed. It's gone, gone, gone. Forever gone. If he does not listen to you, you can forgive him in your spirit while the objective criteria must still go on all the way to church discipline if it must. But now your spirit is not involved in that. Your spirit has forgiven from the heart because you have seen that all in the backdrop of whatsoever God has forgiven you. And you've got the capacity. You've got the bank account. You've got all the deposit out of which you can draw all of that from. And you will keep being able to have it and keep being able to have it because it will never end so long as Christ is in you. So it's dealing with our spirit here. How many times? 70 times 7? No, not 491. But just remember what God has done for you in Christ and consider your future if you don't. And may God help us to get it right, not up here, and way down here before Him. This is quintessential for a church and a family and a marriage to live in the unity of the Spirit in the Gospel. This is grace living. But yet what He has commanded of us, He also has granted us in His Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that as You have commanded of us impossible things, You have also given us the power and the Spirit to accomplish those things in Him. We are thankful that in Christ the law has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled as we abide in Him and He in us. And so we look not to ourselves or to our strength or our ability to do what is commanded here, but we look to You and ask that You would give us the strength. We confess now that there are sins that we have harbored against other people that have brewed in their heart a bitterness or an angst or a particular disposition that we need to deal with before our God. And we do ask for a cleansing, a forgiveness. Lord, as we think about that in light of what You've done to us, we loathe ourselves for even feeling this way against our brothers. How hard it is for us to dismiss a simple and single offense. Yea, even up to a third of our annual salary, maybe even more, but how many lifetimes of debt do we owe You? So how thankful we are, Lord, that You have dismissed them all. May we go and do likewise. Remembering what You've done, and considering our future. We give You the praise and the glory for that which You have begun in us, You have promised will complete it into the day of our full redemption.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.